From the heartland of America and the gateway to the West, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation, around the world. I'm George Norrie. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM. Later tonight, miracles. Here's what's happening. The massive winter storm system enveloped a vast stretch of the United States today, threatening to upend the travel plans of millions of Americans ahead of what could turn out to be one of the coldest Christmas days on record in many cities. At least 2,100 flights canceled already. Leading into the holiday weekend, the storm is expected to bring blizzard conditions to the Great Lakes region. Up to two inches of rain, followed by flash freezing on the East Coast. Wind gusts, folks, of 60 miles an hour and bitter cold as far south as the mexican border my god global warming right pope francis made a dire warning to the roman catholic church warning them to be ever vigilant of demons lurking in the vatican the remarks were delivered as part of his christmas address to the vatican's resident cardinals a tradition that pope francis has turned into something of an annual airing of grievances for the vatican-based prelates more than 6,000 pounds of chicken products sold at Walmart stores nationwide are being recalled due to mislabeling and undeclared allergens. Mountain View Packaging issued the recall for approximately 6,000 pounds of frozen, ready-to-eat crispy chicken with almonds. Here's food safety coach Jeff Nelkin with more. Jeff, it never ends, does it? Hi, George. Yes, uh, what we're talking about, somebody found some shrimp in in the packaging material and uh, for those people that have you know allergies to shrimp this could be you know quite uh, a negative impact on their well-being if those anybody has you know the the products and they have any questions george i have a number that they can call sure. the company to verify uh it is 32 uh, i'm sorry Eight hundred three two four fifty one forty is their customer service line. So if you have a product and or you're not sure about uh, the item, please call that number. How do these mistakes happen, Jeff? Well, there can be several different situations. Obviously, if they're producing crispy chicken, why would there be shrimp somehow mixed up in in this formula? Or was it accidentally, because again, it was found by somebody buying a package of this product and found a piece of shrimp in, in the packaging. You know, so something obviously went wrong in the, you know, the production of this product. All right, my friend, Jeff Nelkin's website, foodsafetycoach.com. Men and women who worked out at least 30 minutes most days are about four times more likely to survive COVID-19 than inactive people, according to an eye-opening study of exercise and coronavirus outcomes among 200,000 adults in Southern California. Life expectancy in the United States has fallen to its lowest levels in 26 years, according to new federal data. Two new reports published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Center for Health Statistics found that the death rate increased 5.3% from 835.4 per 100,000 people to 879.7. This means the life expectancy decreased in 2021 for the second year in a row to 76.4 years, down from 77. Christian Wild, author of MyHeartBook.com. Christian, why is it going down? Well, first of all, George, to you and Tom and the entire Coast to Coast audience, I want to wish you a wonderful holiday season. 
Well, it, it isn't normally the time of year when we would look for good things to encourage and celebrate with our friends and families. This would be the time to do it. Favorable news for all of us, but today's news that you just mentioned is anything but positive and welcomed, and there does not appear to be any progress in controlling this illicit drug-induced deaths uh, happening particularly among our most innocent and vulnerable young people. As drug dealers are selling fentanyl-laced pills yep. to teens, causing this massive increase in overdose deaths. Fentanyl, coming into this country primarily from Mexico, with very little progress in controlling the flow. Now, here's just a couple of examples, George. Just two days ago, the Washington Post reported that their, their uh, DEA office seized enough fentanyl to kill every person in the entire USA. My gosh. And look at this report from the L.A. Times only hours ago saying that the feds just seized enough fentanyl to kill everyone in seven California counties. That's what we're dealing with here. That's what's causing this breakdown in uh, longevity. We might ask ourselves, what is enough, is there enough being done to stop this overwhelming traffic coming across our border? And let's not forget the 1.1 million COVID deaths in this country from COVID this year alone. All right, my friend. I want you to know, by the way, tomorrow night at the end of the program, we're using one of your Christmas songs, so make sure you're listening, okay? I will. God bless you. All right. ChristianWildMyHeartBook.com. On March 8th, 2014, Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 was traveling from Kuala Lumpur International Airport to Beijing in China. 239 people were aboard. 227 passengers, 12 crew members. The flight never arrived. Where did it go? What happened to these people? In a moment, we'll talk about MH370 next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Let me tell you about our guest who is with us tonight talking about MH370, the plane that disappeared March 8th, 2014. Just a horrible situation. 239 people aboard. Richard Godfrey is a university graduate in physics, mathematics, systems engineering, and computer science. He has a postgraduate diploma in business management. Richard worked for many years as an aerospace engineer on a number of commercial and military aircraft projects. He designed and implemented autopilots and automatic landing systems and also worked on manned space programs for NASA and the European Space Agency. He is very involved in the search for MH370. Richard, it's hard to believe it's been eight years on this situation. Welcome to the program. Good evening, George, and thank you for having me on the program. I had noticed uh, a couple weeks ago some information that, that had you heavily involved in it, that more debris has been found, and uh, there's a lot I want to talk with you about on that. I also wanted you to know that in, in 2015, I was part of a group of a total of three people who wrote a book called Someone is Hiding Something, 
where we came up with a various number of scenarios, one of which I want to tell you about a little bit later on in the program tonight, Richard, because I think it might echo where you're headed too. But uh, how did you get involved in this situation with the, the search for MH370? Well, when MH370 uh, disappeared um, in 2014, uh, I was obviously interested from the point of view of being an aerospace engineer and working on uh, aircraft, including Boeing aircraft like uh, this one. Uh, but it goes back for me till 2009, uh, f- uh, five years before. I was working on a major computer project in Brazil and commuting between Europe and Brazil um, and I was booked on Air France 447 from Rio to Paris um, in 2009. I had to rebook uh, to, and stay on business two weeks later, uh, rebooked on Lufthansa from Sao Paulo to Frankfurt. But uh, when I heard that Air France 447 crashed in the Atlantic Ocean, um, I, I, I was you know, quite shocked and uh, and just basically said, you know, there for, but for the grace of God, uh, go I. Um, so I got involved in, in tracking what happened to Air France 447. And when MH370 happened in the Indian Ocean, I saw the parallels between the two. But, and, and I was sort of personally um, and emotionally connected um, because of my experience. And this was a strange flight, too. The aircraft lost uh, tracking from radar screens, but was tracked by the military for another hour, deviating all over the place. Very strange and unusual, wasn't it? It, it was indeed. Um, so the the first 40 minutes of uh, the flight were according to the flight plan of MH370, uh, but then it quite clearly diverted from that Um we don't know if there was a hijacker on board or, or what the reason for the diversion. If it was a problem with the aircraft, uh, the normal procedure is to head to the nearest airport and uh, try and do an emergency landing. But there was no emergency landing attempted at any of the uh, airports in the vicinity. So a lot of unanswered questions uh, immediately arise. Richard, kind of paint us a picture and assume for a moment that we're part of the 227 passengers aboard uh, MH370. We are taking off from Kuala Lumpur. We're going to Beijing. Tell us what's happening. Well, you know, like uh, any time you get on board an aircraft, and over 10 million of us do that every day, we settle into our seat. Uh, we maybe get a, 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 a drink from a, a nice uh, uh, person on board serving drinks, and maybe we get a meal um, starting to be served. Once the plane gets up to its cruising altitude, probably about 20 minutes into the flight, so people are settling down. Um, it's a very late flight uh, and uh, sort of a red eye um, to Beijing in China. So maybe some people are trying to get some sleep. Um, and, uh, you, you know, after 40 minutes, you're probably not looking out the window. You probably don't even notice a very slow turn and a diversion. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it is not going to be obvious um, that there's something uh, wrong. 
immediately obvious. And we're into the flight for 38 minutes, which is not long. All of a sudden, what's happening? Um, well, the plane does an, uh, a slow 180-degree turn back towards Malaysia. It uh, passes right over Malaysia, according to uh, military radar in, in um, Malaysia, uh, and then ha- heads out uh, into the uh, Malacca Strait, uh, um, along the coast of uh, Indonesia, uh, and then it turns again and heads uh, south into the middle uh, of the Indian Ocean. We know from satellite data um, that the plane continued to fly uh, between takeoff uh, and the end of the flight for seven hours, 37 minutes. Now, that's a long time, and you can go a long way. Sure. Uh, Boeing 777 will do, you know, 500 uh, knots. Um, so you can go thousands of miles in that time. At this point, Richard, uh, if we're one of the passengers and we look at the flight attendants, do we see anything on their faces? Is there any concern there on their part? Yeah, well, one question is, um, what is the state of the passengers and the crew on board. Uh, If, for example, the aircraft was depressurized, um, then you would have maybe 20 minutes of oxygen, uh, but then you would uh, naturally fall asleep and eventually you would die. Uh, So we don't know what was going on, whether people were still alive uh, or not, uh, whether there was a depressurization. Um, You can also switch off the heating in the cabin, and then it gets very cold because at 35,000 feet, uh, it's minus 40 outside. I know you're having a cold snap in America at the moment. Oh, yeah, we sure uh, are. But this is, you know, minus 40 degrees Celsius, so we're talking serious uh, uh, cold. And uh, what we do know is there was no attempt uh, of any radio communication or any satellite communication. On the Boeing 777, there are um, five radio systems. Uh, there are different you know, VHF and high-frequency radio systems. There's a they're, satellite phone. They're backup systems, off. right? They're all yeah. backup systems yeah. to, in case... And, and, and they can't possibly all not work <laughs> at once. Uh, you know, there's so many... Uh, different uh, backup systems. So uh, why was there no um, communication at at all? In terms of debris, when it first went down back in uh, 2014, was anything discovered? Um, No. They went uh, uh, first searching in the South China Sea, then they went over to the Malacca Strait on the other side of Malaysia, and then they started searching in the uh, uh, southern Indian Ocean. Um, Boeing and uh, the satellite company Imasat uh, helped the authorities uh, to try and estimate how far the plane could have traveled with the fuel that it had on board. And they, they sent out search planes um, uh, for a period of, of over a month just seeing if they could find any wreckage floating on the surface. Uh, Typically, when an aircraft crashes on the ocean, you will get some debris that uh, floats. Uh, Maybe a sea 
cushion or something where air is trapped inside will float. They didn't find anything. Um, and, of course, the Indian Ocean is 70 million square kilometers, so it's a, it's a huge place. And without uh, the knowledge of exactly where the aircraft crashed, um, it's very difficult to then uh, go out and search. But they searched 120,000 uh, square kilometers and didn't find anything. Eventually, debris was spotted and found leading up to the, some of the last stuff that uh, has been spotted and found that has led you to make some conclusions as well. At what point did this d- debris start showing up? Well, um, the debris in the Indian Ocean, um, it, it flows with the so-called South Equatorial Current okay. uh, all the way uh, over to Africa. And it takes... Um, a couple of years uh, to get there. So the first uh, debris uh, uh, was found on the island of uh, Réunion in the Indian Ocean, but then further debris was found in the island of Mauritius, the island of Madagascar, uh, and then on the African uh, coast of Tanzania, Mozambique, and South Africa. But it took um, a good couple of years uh, to get there, and debris was turning up uh, from then on, um, you know, on a pretty regular basis uh, in 2016, 2017. Um, and we've even discovered recently uh, new debris that was washed up back in 2017, but was sitting in a fisherman's yard for, because um, he, he didn't know what it was. So uh, he thought it might be a useful piece to keep. And how do we know that it came, all this debris came from MH370? Well, um, there are 37 pieces that have been handed in to the authorities and they've been analyzed. Some of those pieces, um, they have found identification plates um, which tie up with the Boeing uh, records of uh, manufacture for this particular aircraft which has the registration 9M uh, hyphen MRO uh-huh. and it and, and Boeing know exactly you know the the line number and the parts that they put on the plane and from these identification plates uh, we have been able to confirm some of these items are definitely from this aircraft other items uh, they had a maybe a stencil uh, on them or some giveaway which uh, led the authorities to conclude uh, this is from uh, flight MH370. Others were definitely from a Boeing 777, but maybe not this one. Mm-hmm. But, uh, MH370 is the only Boeing 777 that uh, uh, crashed in the Indian Ocean. So, uh, you know, it's pretty likely that it must have been from MH370. And to date, Richard, no bodies have shown up, have they? No, they haven't. And, of course, for the families, um, they're not able to have closure um, without knowing what happened. Um, and uh, I, I really feel for the families uh, uh, what they've been going through. And now it's eight years. I've been invited to speak at their commemoration event each year. In, uh, and 
it is traumatic uh, for the families. I'm sure. Richard, we're going to take a short break. We'll come back and talk more about missing flight MH370. We'll talk about this latest debris that was discovered and what it has led you to conclude. And then we'll get into some other specifics. And I'll tell you a little bit about what my thoughts were when we wrote the book. Someone is hiding something. It's a very strange story. George Norrie with you back in a moment with Richard Godfrey on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie along with Richard Godfrey, who has been investigating MH370 since its disappearance back in 2014. Richard, this latest piece of debris, you said that it showed up a couple of years ago, but nobody really knew about it. Tell us what it was. Um, it was uh, an item uh, which is very similar to other debris items that we found. Uh, it is a uh, composite material, uh, carbon-reinforced fiber. Uh, it has a honeycomb structure. The pieces uh, are obviously fragmented and fractured on, on every side. It's been ripped off uh, from uh, the plane. Um, it looks to me like a piece uh, which comes uh, from one of the wings. Uh, when on the wings, um, when the undercarriage is, is extended uh, and, and lowered, the main um, pieces of the undercarriage come out uh, from the body of the fuselage, but mm-hmm. they extend out under the wing, and there are four doors that open to allow the undercarriage to uh, be extended. And I think uh, this piece looks uh, rather like it could be from one of those doors under the wing um, of, of this uh, uh, unfortunate uh, MH370 aircraft. Have they, have they ever found parts of the landing gears or anything like that, the wheels? Um, they have found uh, from the nose wheel um, a, a door. Uh, there are four doors that open on the nose of the aircraft for the nose wheel, and they match that up with a with a, another Boeing 777, and uh, that got confirmed to be uh, from MH370. Um, they have found parts from all over the aircraft, from the interior, the exterior, from the wings, from the fuselage, from uh, cabin seating, cabin dividers, from, from the nose to the tail, even bits of engine uh, cowling and and engine nameplates. Um, So this was quite a um, massive uh, impact uh, in order to get all these pieces from all over uh, the aircraft. And as I mentioned earlier, 37 pieces have been uh, found, meanwhile, which have floated mostly because of the honeycomb structure, because that captures air in the in the honeycomb structure, and, and these pieces will float uh, on the ocean. Is there any evidence, Richard, of an explosion aboard the plane? No, there's no trace on any of these items uh, of explosion or, or fire. Um, we thought on one piece at one point uh, it looked like it may have been burnt, but uh, the analysis showed it was just the discoloring of the of the resins used in the manufacture of the part, and uh, no traces of explosion or fire. 
Would the debris have been, I guess, created by an impact into the ocean seabed? Um, not the seabed, but the ocean surface is. Okay. Uh, water is is pretty dense, and uh, it's it's not like crashing into a mountain or 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 to concrete, uh, but it it is still pretty dense. And as soon as you impact, uh, um, you have to bear in mind a uh, uh, 175. Uh, uh, thousand uh, uh, metric uh, uh, kilos. Uh, it, it's a huge weight. Uh, an aircraft, even when it's empty of fuel, it's still a huge weight. When it hits the ocean, it will typically, uh, and other crashes we've seen hitting the ocean, uh, could split into uh, literally fifty thousand pieces, wow. or, or sometimes even more. And this seems to me, Richard, to be more of a direct impact as opposed to a glide into the ocean. Yeah. When you have an emergency landing, um, the most famous one, I think, is Captain Sullenberger on the Hudson River. Sully, Um, that's right. Yeah, Sully. And uh, you normally... Uh, extend the flaps um, so that you can slow the aircraft down. Uh, you will keep the undercarriage um, retracted uh, so that the plane has a smooth uh, belly and and doesn't uh, uh, sink uh, in the water uh, quickly, as as you saw in the Hudson uh, River uh, crash of U.S. Airways 1549. Sullenberger. Uh, did a great uh, job landing smoothly. Um, In this case with MH370, we see the opposite. Uh, The flaps were not extended. We've got a, one of the flaps have been found and analyzed and the conclusion from the authorities was uh, that the flaps were not uh, extended. And it appears from this particular uh, piece of wreckage we just discovered, that it is possible that the undercarriage was lowered and was uh, extended. So it's the complete contrary of what you should do uh, according to the emergency procedure. Therefore, I conclude it was not a soft landing, um, not an uh, attempted uh, emergency landing uh, like Captain Sullenberger did. But uh, it was the complete opposite. It was a very high-speed impact uh, and designed, uh, in effect, to make sure that there were tens of thousands of pieces uh, uh, of damage uh, and, and a complete wreckage of the aircraft. The investigators looked at the people aboard the plane, and they concluded that there was no hijacking. I'm going to go through some of the explanations in our book, Someone is Hiding Something, and I'll tell you the one that I think is possible and get your opinion on it. You ready? Explanation one. These are just explanations now. Weather, hijacking, mechanical malfunction, extraordinary means, aliens took the ship. Shot down by a missile, sabotage, it landed somewhere. And here's the one that I think possibly is the conclusion. Suicide or pilot terrorist activity. 
I think Captain Shaw may have been involved in taking that plane into a dive and killed himself and took them with him. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think uh, you've you've listed all of the possible scenarios. Uh, I know there are over 150 books written on MH370, and every every book has a different uh, scenario. Um, number one, an, a plane does not continue to fly for seven hours, 37 minutes, if it's got a major problem with a fire on board or uh, electrical failure or a mechanical uh, uh, issue. So I, I, I think the plane was still uh, functioning uh, perfectly well. Uh, so then you come to, was it, was it hijacked? And I know they went through all the passengers on board. I know there were um, two passengers on false passports on board. And um, uh, but they checked them out, and they didn't seem to be hijackers. So uh, I have a problem with the hijack theory. Um, we know that Captain Sahari Shah had a flight simulator at home, and we know uh, on this flight simulator um, they found one of many flights that he'd done was to the middle of the southern Indian Ocean until fuel exhaustion. Now, when you've got a flight simulator at home, uh, you probably try uh, landing on your favorite airport or you might try something difficult, um, landing on a, I don't know, in the middle of the uh, Yukon Territory and, and uh, uh, in some mountainous valley or something difficult, but you don't normally try flying to the middle of uh, an ocean till fuel exhaustion. And, of course, what, what about the co-pilot? The co-pilot was on his uh, last uh, training flight uh, and was uh, – Captain Shah was a um, – not just a captain, but a trainer of pilots as well. And he was just doing a – the final approval check for this uh, young co-pilot uh, who would then be, you know, officially a full uh, co-pilot for the 777. Um, he seemed to have everything to live for, this guy. Right. He, he had just uh, gotten engaged, didn't he? Yeah, he got engaged. He just bought a nice car. Um, you know, he was starting to earn some money, and uh, things were looking uh, good. Um, obviously, Captain... Uh, Sahari Shah is a, uh, a, a much more senior uh, individual. He has um, a, a very good track record uh, as a pilot, um, and he was well respected uh, by his colleagues. Um, but you know, he, he pilots um, are also subject, like everybody else, to um, health problems and. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have to get a health check every year. Um, the health check uh, report, um, the final re uh, health check report, um, sort of put the ticks in all the right boxes, but it may not have discovered, um, you know, there was no um, brain scans done or, or CT scans or uh, it's just, you know, can you 
uh, are you alert? Are you fit? Is your blood pressure right? Is your heart rate okay? Um, there could have been something uh, which was not obvious in the medical check, uh, some health reason, but that is pure speculation on, on my part. In, t in terms of the, the pilot uh, suicide, um, uh, it's not just a suicide, it would then be also mass murder. That's right. Um, uh, of uh, all of the passengers and crew uh, on board. Um, it, there's there's no evidence uh, of that. So again, it's it, it's speculation. The, the there is this smoking gun, if you like, that uh, the home simulator uh, of the captain had this rather weird flight to fuel exhaustion in the middle of the uh, ocean. But um, that is not direct evidence uh, that that was what he was planning to do. Um, and, and so, in my view, we, we know where the plane crashed. We know uh, a lot about what happened with the debris we found and the satellite data we have and the Boeing data we have and the uh, whisper radio technology data we have. But we don't actually know who was flying uh, at the moment of the, uh, the diversion and the moment of the crash, and we don't know why, uh, what the motivation uh, was. And that's why we need to find the aircraft, we need to recover the data recorder, we need to see if there's any clues in the wreckage that will help uh, the authorities to answer the question exactly what happened uh, and why it happened and who was uh, uh, the pilot uh, in control. What we do know from the data is that there was an active pilot right up until the end of the flight. So it wasn't a, a ghost flight, um, as, as some people in some books have expressed the idea. And there was never any mayday or any kind of broadcast to any other tower, was there? No, and there was plenty of opportunity to do it. Um, uh, the VHF radio has a good range. The satellite uh, phone, um, you can call in from anywhere. Uh, the high-frequency radio will allow you to uh, communicate over thousands of miles. So there was plenty of systems that would allow you uh, to communicate uh, a mayday um, message, but it, it never that never came. Hence, I mean, obviously, if there was a hijacker on board, uh, they they switch off the transponder of the aircraft so it can't be tracked. They don't. Uh, they switch off the radio so, uh, and, and don't uh, take any uh, uh, calls or make any calls. Um, so, I tend to go with you down the route of a hijacking. Um, now, who the pilot was. Was it a hijacker pilot or was it the captain who hijacked his own plane? That I, I can't uh, determine. I don't have any evidence that tells me uh, one way uh, or the other. I keep hearing conflicting reports about his uh, personality, that maybe he was going through some kind of marital issues. Uh, part of his family defends him, and rightfully so, I would guess. 
but it's a very strange, strange situation. And for it to happen 38 minutes into the flight, isn't that unusual? Yes, uh, it is. And uh, um, I've also read uh, those reports. And uh, But, you know, um, to be quite frank, George, I also have marital problems from time to time. I love my wife dearly and she loves me, but sometimes we rub each other up the wrong way. Um, but that doesn't cause me to think about going out and hijacking a plane. That's right. Um, and I know he had political views, uh, quite strong um, political views, and uh, the Malaysian government at the time in 2014 has meanwhile been um, charged with corruption. Uh, and uh, he, uh, uh, Captain Shah was uh, uh, a member of the opposition party, uh, from a political standpoint, uh, I know he um, had great respect for Anwar Ibrahim, who is um, now uh, the was that Prime one of his Minister. was that one of his relatives? No, it's a distant. It was uh, uh, you know a cousin of a cousin, so a distant relative. But um, Anwar Ibrahim was back in 2014 dragged into court and accused of uh, what his uh, supporters say was completely unfounded um, uh, case of, of sodomy, uh, thrown him in prison, eventually released. Well, as a matter of fact, the pilot was in court witnessing that situation that day. We'll talk more about that, Richard, when we come back and also take phone calls with you next.